0: Today we talk with Sarah Ahmed about her new book, The Feminist Killjoy Handbook. How and why is it that complaining about sexism, transphobia, and other forms of bigotry is considered impolite? How is civility uncivil and the mandate to be happy a tool for silence and grievances. Sarah Ahmed tackles all these questions and gives us strength and courage to keep on killing joy and speaking truth.
1: The Feminist Killjoy Handbook is a vital resource for liberation in killing the forms of joy that are premised on killing, dispossessing, and marginalizing so many of us.
0: Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. I want to begin, Sarah, by thanking you. It's such a useful book in so many dimensions. It's informative, argumentative, therapeutic, Mm -hmm. enraging, inspiring. You have study stories, philosophy. So I had two questions to start with. One is obvious, which you can take some time to unpack, which is what is a feminist killjoy? The second question is, why did you choose the form of a handbook? I think that was ingenious and incredibly foresightful.
2: They're great questions to start with, and thank you for talking to me about the Feminist Killjoy handbook. I really appreciate it. The Feminist Killjoy, in a way, begins as a stereotype of feminists, those miserable feminists who make misery their mission. And in reclaiming that figure, I'm following on from many other acts of political reclaimings of terms that maybe begin their lives as insults or as smears as well as stereotypes, I think of the word queer. So the term is used to dismiss feminism as motivated by misery or by the desire to cause misery. And in reclaiming that figure, you're not agreeing with the idea that feminists are miserable. Luckily, I don't think that is the case. (laughs) Rather what we're saying is, well, if feminism causes misery, if talking about sexism or racism forms of power, inequality, violence, causes misery, then that is what we are willing to cause. And that's why in the book itself, I wrap the book around these kind of killjoy commitments. And one of the primary ones is simply, I'm willing to cause unhappiness because so many forms of social inequality and social violence, in effect, hard to speak about, hard to address, hard to make real even, because as soon as you name them, you're treated as if you've brought them into existence. As soon as you name the problem, you become the problem. And so the act of reclaiming the feminist killjoy really requires a lot of political solidarity. It's very hard to do that on your own. It's very hard to cause the unhappiness of others on your own. You actually end up on a journey that allows you to connect to other people other killjoys and that's part of why killing joy becomes world-making in, in my language so that's kind of like the feminist killjoy i picked her up actually many years ago i first wrote about the feminist killjoy in my 2010 book the promise of happiness you know i was thinking back to that and to what led me to the figure of the killjoy and it's really because i was writing about happiness and i was writing about happiness in part because i was so struck when i was doing this project on diversity within universities, about how many diversity practitioners offered really strong critique of the ways in which diversity itself was used as a kind of happiness mission. One practitioner called it a big shiny apple. It all looks wonderful, but the inequalities aren't being addressed. So I came to happiness to offer a critique of happiness, and the kill joke came to me then. And the kill joke came up partly because I had these memories myself of being assigned her, of being positioned as her, the one that was ruining the dinner as my mum would say, for talking about sexism or speaking back to my father. So I wanted to write a book that would be a, a trade book. You know, I'm no longer in the academy. I'm working independently. And although I think of myself as a feminist teacher, I also really committed to the idea of feminist ideas circulating as widely and as wildly as possible. So I knew I wanted to write my first trade book. And I thought the feminist Kiljo was a good companion to do that with because whenever I've spoken about this figure, people being been like, yeah, I get that. I, I see that I've been there. I've been in that place. And so I knew I wanted to write the book with Killjoys, my companion. And then I'm like, well, what would the format be? I, I was a little bit scared, to be perfectly honest. I'm like, I've written about Feminist Killjoys so often. Is there anything left to say? There was a bit of me that was wondering that. I remember walking out with my dogs and thinking, oh, what is there left to say? But then I started writing it and I realized there's so much more to say. And it actually was became a really helpful Exercise myself to reflect back on how and why and when the feminist kill joke came up, and to think a little bit about how sometimes it's quite explicit she comes up because of what you bring up, but at other times I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Like, just a little aside here, the, the, the time when I tried to get a, a course on gender, race, and colonialism approved in my first job when I was a very junior lecturer, and the a professor from another department got very, very angry because he said that I'd use the word implicated. In my course description, which he said meant he thought that I thought colonialism was a bad thing. And then he gave me this lecture on how colonialism was a good thing. And at the time, I had thought of it as a Killjoy encounter, but then I realized, of course, it was. Because he could see in the course a critique, a refusal of that happy understanding of empire, as mernity and so on, the process of writing. So the Killjoy, it was a really interesting revisiting of many of my own experiences. But why a handbook? I think of a handbook as a hand and as a handle, a way of holding on to something. There's no doubt in my mind that experiences of being a kill joke can be painful and difficult and isolating, shattering even. You're close to things that are quite traumatic as well, relationships that cease to be possible because of what you brought up or because of what you can't pass over. So for me, The Feminist Kill joke, giving them a book of their own, their first book, I wanted it to be a handbook because I, I wanted to really think about what helps us do this work. What do we need from each other and with each other? And I brought into the text all these companions that were my companions as a writer, as a scholar, as a thinker, as a person. My companions, my many Kildred companions, both those who are my contemporaries, but also the many writers, some of whom are no longer with us, who have given me so much thought for inspiration and have shared their wisdom in ways that are about ready you know, looking at very complex and difficult topics, not shying away from what's hard, but confronting it and finding in that confrontation another way of being in the world and connecting with others. Perfect.
1: And so it's a, it's a handbook, but it implicates so many other parts of our bodies as well. I think our eyes all rolled collectively when you <laughs> call that anecdote about daring to say that colonialism was bad. It's not only a handbook, but it's also a, a heart book. I mm. think I know it speaks so deeply to so many of us about, things that we experience that hit us viscerally in our hearts. So for me, it was an exhilarating book to read, but it was also in many ways very difficult to read precisely because it speaks to the violence embedded in so many things that we're repeatedly taught to think of as being unmitigatedly good, happiness, even feminism, the violence that's perpetuated by so many white liberal feminists in the name of feminism, even the killjoy, we know so much violence is perpetuated by those who think of themselves as being oppositional and therefore inherently on the side of justice and Mm -hmm. incapable of committing harm themselves. It seems that the figure of the feminist like so much of the way we think about identity is at risk of being turned into something like a property of self that some people think they possess and therefore they can wield it as a weapon almost but also as the inherent value of property comes from being able to exclude others from it and so the killjoy too then even becomes something that is like a sign as you write in the book a sign that some people can hang on the wall even while they're enacting so much violence against women themselves and so How do you think of what it means to be a feminist killjoy in ways that are beyond or against this idea of it being an identity as a property?
2: That's a really good question, and it's something I'm really conscious of. I actually call it a note to self in the last chapter of the handbook, which is about the killjoy as an activist. It's a note to self that there is more to being a feminist killjoy than saying you are one. And in a way, what I'm very conscious of, and I think this is true with any of the critical terms that we invest ourselves and our projects in, that it can become more acceptable, be neutralized, be appropriated, become a commodity. I have a Killjoy t-shirt. I have a Killjoy blog. My publicist has just put together a Killjoy hat, you know, and it can become marketable. We can become marketable. And with that proliferation, there is, of course, a potential for then the killjoy to get places, but to get places in such a way that the work itself gets negated and it becomes just like diversity. It is used more because it does less. So I'm super aware of that. One of my survival tips for the feminist killjoy, which is in the second chapter, surviving as a feminist killjoy, and by survival tip, I'm not just thinking about your survivor or mine, I'm thinking about the survival of the project, the feminist project to dismantle the structures that perpetuate violence. So I think our survival is bound up with this broader political survival of the project, because I think without that project staying alive, so much of what we need to be possible as people, as women, as queer people, ceases to to be there for us. But one of them was, listen to the feminist killjoy as if she is another person, And it's really important to me, when I talk about the killjoy, sometimes I do say as a killjoy, like I claim it. I more often talk about the killjoy as my companion, as somebody else who's speaking to me. And I think that's very important because if we assume that we are feminist killjoys, then we cannot hear, we can allow ourselves not to hear critiques because we might then presume those critiques of what we're doing. Of what we're saying or how we're occupying space we might presume that someone's saying that just because i'm the, the difficult person they don't get me i'm really aware of how the killjoy can be used like that has been used like that and there is one of the stories um, that i included in one of the chapters about uh, a woman of color an academic who told me about this uh, academic man who had many complaints of, of harassment and bullying brought against him, who had the feminist killjoy sign on his door. I want to evoke the radical rudeness of Stella Nianzi or the swearing feminism of Mona el and say, get it off the fucking door. But you're well aware that sign, he might take it off the door. He might take it out onto the march on a placard, you know, speaking against the very violence that he's enacting behind that closed door. You know, none of us can stop the words we're using or the projects that we're having being appropriated in that way. That's a risk of appropriation and a risk of negation. That's part of the political world that we're in. I think it's just really important to be conscious that it's possible and that it happens. I've always been very aware that in my own work as a critical race feminist scholar can easily be appropriated and turned into slogans and signs on doors in ways that are problematic. And I just, I think the thing that I've done is always try and be really aware of who I'm speaking to and who I'm doing the work for. And I write this book as a handbook, knowing that other people could read it. But I'm writing it for feminist killjoys, especially feminist killjoys of color who get it, because they've seen that kind of appropriation. They've seen the ways in which it can become glib, even Mm. an identity or an aesthetics. And we need to keep these as notes to self as well. We we need to keep asking ourselves the hard questions about what we're doing, the work we're doing, and our commitments to bring about social justice.
0: I'm so glad that you quoted from Simone de Beauvoir because in nearly every one of my courses I quote from the introduction to The Second Sex, I'm just going to read a couple of sentences, and I'd like you to talk about happiness and the mandate to be happy and how stultifying and violent that can be. She writes, It's not too clear just what the word happy really means and still less what true values it may mask. There is no possibility of measuring the happiness of others, and it's always easy to describe as happy the situation in which one wishes to place them. In particular, those who are condemned to stagnation are often pronounced happy on the pretext that happiness consists in being at rest. This notion we reject, for our perspective, is that of existentialist ethics. Every subject plays their part, as such, specifically through exploits or projects that serve as a mode of transcendence. They achieve liberty only through a continual reaching out toward other liberties. So can you talk a little bit about the happiness card that people always pull out. And as you say, uh, if you violate the, the conditions that allow them to be happy, you're being a bad person. But talk about the negative aspects of happiness.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is the work of the Giljoy to talk about exactly the negative aspects of what has been deemed to be a good thing. And that Simone de Beauvoir statement, there's so much wisdom and eloquence in that. I always wish to describe it. I can always describe as happy a situation in which one wishes to place others. It is such a profound observation in my view. And I think what's really striking to me is, as a feminist academic, when I went and read the history of happiness, how sustained the feminist critique of happiness has been. And in a way, the history of happiness as an idea can only be told happily if we exclude much of that feminist work. So I said, Monde de absolutely. But there have also been other very important critics. Shilamah Faststone's dialectic of sex. She called for a smile strike or smile embargo, I think it was. Women should stop smiling until they had something to smile about. And in her critique of happiness, there is also an awareness that smiling when it becomes obligatory can be the requirement to show your submission or complicity or your agreement with the situation in which you've been placed. And I think that expectation that you will be happy or that you should, is often hidden because it it seemed to be the way in which happiness is often seen to be about freedom, the freedom to be happy or to be about choice or volition. And then maybe even sometimes one makes oneself be happy in a situation that might originally have been imposed because actually it is easier not to experience an imposition as an imposition. And then if you've convinced yourself that you are happy, you can have a sense of being more at ease. And there can be so much violence in that work. I think Ali Hoschild's Managed Heart in 1985 talks about this quite explicitly, the emotional labor of trying to make yourself feel as you're supposed to feel to close the gap between what you do feel and what you should feel. And I've always been really, really interested in that emotional labor and what it's doing and what it's concealing. And the way in which the wedding day is a happy stay of your life before it happens, which is one of the reasons it happens. So interested in doing the work of questioning where happiness is found, that's part of the cultural studies part of me, I think. It's not so much what is happiness, but what's it doing? Where does it turn up and where doesn't it turn up? And how what seems as a freedom is so often really turned into a duty that you should be happy in order to promote the happiness of others who come before you. So those who come first, their happiness come first. So that the the happiness of the citizen, if you are the the immigrant, the expectation that you be grateful for what you have received, that happiness then becomes about uh, acceptance of your position as a secondary subject. Well, we can just go on and on for more and more examples. But one of the things that really interested me is the origin of the word happy, happiness, which is from hap, the Middle English word hap which means chance. One of the concerns I've always had is like, how did happiness lose its hat? Because it is so often now not presented as something that just happens, but rather something that you have to work for in that kind of neoliberal technique of self. You must earn your happiness by living in the right way. So that became, in a way, kind of, for me, a kind of queer question. Where and how did happiness lose its hat? And what would it mean to put a hat back into happiness? Because the argument of the handbook, or my argument, is not that we are obliged to be unhappy. It is that we should be unhappy with the world that assumes happiness in these places. But it's not about feeling bad. Like you should your way of doing politics should be about being miserable. It is about questioning the expectation of happiness without making unhappiness the cause. We're willing to cause unhappiness, but it's not the cause. It's just something that we're willing to cause if that is what it takes to create a more just world.
1: Happiness is so bound up with and entangled with state institutions of violence as well. In The Promise of Happiness, you mentioned Martin Sigmund, who was a founder or luminary in the field of positive psychology. But of course, we also know he was also progenitor of theories of uh, quote-unquote learned. Helplessness, which formed the basis of the CIA's torture, euphemized as enhanced interrogation techniques. And that these experiments, too, were not only used to rationalize projects of violence against humans, but the experiments themselves were extremely violent against dogs who are electroshocked into states of, of learned helplessness. And I know dogs hold a dear part in all of our hearts. You described the project of empire as, quote-unquote, polishing the world into happiness. And of course, we know empire has also been described as world policing, and policing and polishing and politeness have been so connected to each other historically in projects of empire. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the connection between killjoying and projects of abolition against structures of state violence. Killjoying, like abolition, are both addressing institutions, happiness, policing, prisons, that many people have so much affect, positive affect, bound up in the hopes of justice, the hopes of joy. Killjoying and abolition are also both often represented as as negative projects rather than positive projects, even though we know from those who speak about them, you, Black, Indigenous, abolitionists, that it's not simply about tearing down or negative project, but about prefiguring different forms of life where different forms of joy and togetherness and organization are possible that aren't premised on foundations of violence. And so can you talk a bit about how, if and whether you see connections between killjoying and abolition?
2: Yes, I do. And I think there is somebody, Andrew Diltz, who's been writing about abolitionist killjoys specifically. And I think his work is really interesting. Absolutely. Your starting point around the relationship between polishing and policing. It's really interesting and important. I became totally obsessed by polish. (laughs) Literally thinking about polishing as an activity, the polishing of the table, creating a shiny table, the relationship between the word polish and the word polite, they share a root. Thinking about diversity as institutional polishing, where you remove the smear or where the shiny reflection reflects well on the institution and how then you become the polish as a person of colour. So for me, polishing was very bound up with the question of how institutions work the te- the techniques by which they make themselves available to some and not others and in a way thinking about that in terms of police we're also thinking about policing then as a project of cleaning who gets to be put where and the sub- hyper surveillance that is part of institutions that don't represent themselves as violent institutions such as universities that nevertheless can be implicated in violence. That's so often that kind of surveillance, looking for a matter out of place, which is an old definition of dirt used by Mary Douglas, obviously, that to become the matter out of place, the stranger, the dubious one, is to end up being under scrutiny. And in, in a way, polishing becomes, is a, almost a way of trying not to stand out because of the awareness of those techniques of surveillance. So your starting sort of preamble is actually really interesting to unpack because it's getting us to think about some of the techniques by which institutions re- reproduce themselves. They are the very soft ones. Come in, the invitation to join us to inhabit that committee by speaking in a certain kind of way. They don't look like the harsh policing technologies of certain state institutions, but they can operate in very, in very similar ways. And I think the project of the Killing Joy, yeah, I look at the relationship between some of the work of the Kildra and very briefly, but in the final chapter on activism. And I, I think I really love the work by Gina Dent et al on abolition feminism. I think is a really important book. and I like how they present abolition feminism as a kind of living archive, an archive of a movement. And I think the ways in which what you're trying not to turn to the institutions that harm for the resolutions of harm, and that requires us to become more inventive and to have, as it were, our own resources for thinking through what to do with situations of ongoing violence. So not turning to the the police and the prisons without question, but also not turning to those institutions that historically have actually not done, they're bound up with policing of all sorts of precarious populations. Doesn't just mean, it's not just a negative, it's also a positive because you're having to work things out yourself you're having to think more in the language of transformative justice about what it would mean to heal without giving the very language of healing to an institution because of course institutions love that language they really want to talk about trauma they really want to offer you therapy my institution when we was, were going through the sexual harassment cases kept offering me therapy like Sarah you we give you therapy like that I do I not want therapy I want justice you know so we have to be very very careful I've been writing a handbook called a complainer's handbook a guide to building less hostile institutions is trying to think about sometimes we have to address the institution. We have to use the institution's resources. We need to develop better policies and procedures, even though they can be used not to do anything. But we also have to have spaces to address each other. So when we're thinking about transformative justice, that's never going to be something that we're talking to the institution about without the institution using those terms to negate the very reasons we're going to it for them. That has to be a conversation, a space. That we're building ourselves and using our own resources as best we can. I, I think very around that. Mm. That for me, it's is really about creating these spaces. It's not just about words or conversations. It's actually like bringing the experiences that you might have had of violence to each other so that you can mm. actually not feel like it's your own problem yet again. And that there's something about the practice of killing joy, which is about saying what happened to you is in the world and that there is a responsibility that we have to each other to recognize that harm is not just something that happened to you, but as part of a shared struggle. And I think that reorientation of the gaze and the attention to each other as part of a community of struggle is what
0: abolitionism and killing joy share. I want to open a topic, but I want to insert something because you mentioned Gina Dent's book. One of the things I love about that book is something that Aziza and I talked with Michael Hart about yesterday, and that's failure you know, that whole chapter about attempts to change things and when things fall short and how you take that on. And yesterday we were talking about the subversive seventies and Michael punctuates his book with this quote from Robin Kelly about struggle shouldn't be measured on whether they succeed or fail. It should be on the values and the vision that they embrace. So I just wanted to put that out there that with killing joy, it's not an easy task. And one thing we Um, talked about a lot yesterday is, think of what we're up against. It's not fair for us to imagine that we could really win in the logic and in the metrics that the institution sets up. But what I was going to talk about was emotions. I'll begin with an anecdote, and this is a sadly true story. And the faculty sent it here at Stanford. Before you give a presentation, you have to go through a kind of dress rehearsal with a committee to make sure that you don't have too many PowerPoint slides, etc. And I was giving a presentation on how students were being harmed by being doxed by the right wing. And so I gave my thing, and this person actually said this. He said, well, you don't want to use that kind of language because then people will say, it's just Palumbo Liu spouting off again. So your name becomes the genre, right? Yeah. And I was mulling that through in my head. And when you were here, Sarah, we talked a lot about tables and furniture Mm -hmm. and turning the tables. And I was thinking that kind of comment comes from a place, again, I'm being an amateur psychologist, from somebody who would never imagine themselves being in my position, mm. right? In other words, they probably were saying, Phew, I will never be in the position of having to complain because I don't know what I would do if I was obliged to. So can you talk a little bit about how much the condemnation of killjoys might very well come from a place of being incredibly protected by being emotionally tuned out to anything like this because of exactly what Aziza was talking about? the institutional weight of conforming to a mindset that forecloses any kind of possibility of empathy.
2: There's some really important observations there. And just to go back to what you said about failure, I think that too is very important. And I think there's a way in which the work you have to do to succeed in the terms maybe set up by a specific institution often require having to give so much up politically. And I think of a lot of OWAD, the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent, it lived, lasted officially as an organization for four years in the UK. And people often say that it was a short, it was a failure at one level because it didn't last very long, but actually it wasn't. It lasted much longer than the life of the organization because it went out with all the people who were part of it, carried it with them. But also it didn't last so long because it didn't compromise its values in order to get funding because if they had got funding, it would have been lasted longer, but then they would have been redirected towards the objectives of the funders. So there's a way in which sometimes failure is how you hold on to your project. And I think that the Killjoy story there too, is sometimes it's about what you're willing to give up and willing to give up in order to hold on to something. I think that's actually really, really important. But yeah, I don't think it's an amateur psychologist. I think that's a really good description of what it's like to be in that position. And I still remember when I was at Goldsmiths and towards the end people I'd already called myself a famous killjoy but that doesn't stop you being assigned that position in a way that's oh yeah you're on it you're on it again and that I think there's a way in which there's an expectation that this one person is going to carry the complaint or be the complaint so they're going to say it so you don't have to hear them because they've already said it and then they say it and then there's nothing's happened And, and you can feel so stuck and those who've been in that position, it, it can feel like you're weighed down by it, the expectation that that's what you'll say and do. But it can also feel very, very tight, like you've got no room to move. And I really wanted to be able to write some of the difficulty of what it's like to be in that position. So that's why one of the Killjoy survival tips is no, it's not up to you. Like, so you could have in that meeting said one thing or another thing and still they would hear it as a rant like sometimes the rant is not in the words it's in their ears it's how they're hearing you and how they're hearing you is so much to do with what they don't have to do themselves the vulnerabilities they do not have to express the positions they don't have to end up in they don't have to be called into the diversity committee because they don't embody something for the diversity committee and I really tried to convey in the philosophy chapter finally now the ways in which coming up against these doors and walls where sometimes you, you just have to open the door and they see you and they're like eyes start rolling the history is so heavy that you can hear it in the atmosphere and what it's like to not have to go through that like the institution i think the ways in which it gets imagined the university say is being open it's partly because it's written or imagined from the point of view of those who open that door only to enter without history getting in the way of what they're doing or being And so I just think there's a lot of emotion involved to doing the work that we do, the ways in which we get positioned without any question, but there is also a hell of a lot of knowledge, so much shit in a way, shitty knowledge that I never want to unknow because I think what I can hear and what both you're saying is the sharpness of wisdom of, of knowing how these histories work and how little room we have and yet we keep doing the work of trying to push back and create space for ourselves.
0: I I would just add to what you said, that some people have built up so much institutional goodwill by harming others. So they walk into rooms with history, with positive history, because they've built up this immunity so they can say anything they want. It's the adverse facet of a killjoy, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And I'm still trying to work through how their positive history, the way in which it gets held by individuals who become stars or become charismatic. I'm trying to work through really how hard it is to chip away at that every now and then we get these letters written by colleagues about a harasser in one institution one university or another and every time I read those letters which say oh this person is a great scholar or this person is a great citizen or this person is great or, I like this person or this person's my friend or whatever they're saying and like, every time I read one of those letters I just feel it like here it's so painful it, it, it hurts I know mostly those letters are invisible. No one knows about them, but they're in private files and where we were. People wrote letters, very eminent post-colonial people wrote letters on behalf of the harassers that were in those files. I know how it works. And I think what's really, really hard is when people who have feminist values, anti-racist values, still perform the same kind of allegiance and support to those who are known to be invested in the harassment of others. So entitled that they feel that they have the right to access other people in whatever way that they do. And I think that that's one of the really hard things for me still to understand how even some of the most politically radical people can be really institutionally conservative. And you know that. There's one one story that's actually in the Fearless Kill Joe Handbook. It's also going to be in the Complainers Handbook, which is about uh, a postgraduate who she made a complaint about the most senior person in her whole university and he made sure she had no career, she couldn't get a PhD. She said, that door is shut. And what really interested me about her example is that she was warned about complaining, not by the professor himself, but rather by a junior member of that department who was a woman of colour, actually. And you could see how it worked. This woman of colour, she would need that professor in order to get her promotion. So he holds the door to the institution because he can determine who gets where and who gets what. And that then, for the junior member of staff, actually, in order to have a future, a career, she has to protect him. And it all gets so bound up together that no matter what people's political beliefs, they end up becoming the people who allow that person to enter the room and say what they want to say and do what they want to do, they, who keep giving them permission. And it's a real structural problem. What if-
1: I think shitty, shitty knowledge should be coined yeah. as its own category of knowledge, but we also know shit makes some of the best fertilizer as well. (laughs) And I think from your shitty knowledge grows such a tree of wisdom about all these different techniques and tactics that institutions, you're speaking specifically about academic institutions, Mm -hmm. but I see that my own work on state violence and state institutions, all of these tactics through which institutions of power, not only obscure and deny their own violence, but reverse it so that the violated are represented as the violators. And so that when we challenge power, we're represented as simply seeking power for ourselves. When violence is repeated, it's our critiques that then get accused of being Mm -hmm. repetitive. And then when we have a few crumbs thrown to us, we're accused of not being grateful for those pittances that don't actually really change any of the structures, but simply reproduce them and maybe put a bit of a happier facade on them, A a polish, as you said, polish, not only erases the violence, but it also erases all traces of itself, which is part of the violence and the power of polish. But unless those tactics are named and analyzed, it's so easy for us to fall into their logic when attempting to respond to them. And so I think another thing that's so beautiful and valuable about your work, the entire body of it, as well as the Feminist Killjoy Handbook in particular, is that it also models ways for us to respond to these systems of power and violence without falling into their logic. Tactics like repetition, refusing to adhere to the conceit that what we're saying is new in a way that erases histories of violence and the opposition to it. Uh, Practices of citation that, again, refuse to Honor the canon of who's considered authoritative by redrawing and rerouting circuits of authority, resignation, exiting those institutions that so much of our own hopes have been bound up in. And so, can you talk a bit about this toolkit or even arsenal of tactics of resistance that you model through your work? learned through hard experience that other feminist killjoys can draw on to avoid reproducing these very logics that are harming us?
2: That's a beautifully worded comments and questions. And yeah, when I wrote the Feminist Killjoy Handbook, I mentioned at the beginning that actually I, I learned so much from going back over the trajectory of the killjoy, who I think of as very much exterior to me. And one of the reasons for that was because it is about going back over the work that led me here. And I've always loved the idea of thinking about citational pathways, like citation as a path that you follow. And that in a way, citation then becomes a sort of a kind of remembering and bringing what matters into the present text, showing the connections, keeping them alive. I really love Audre Lorde, who's probably the one of the most cited authors in the handbook. I really love in Audre Lorde's poem, Power when she describes the importance of using your power. And Audrey Lord was very much a user of the word use. It's a much-used word in Lord's archive, which I think is really interesting. But she talks about not letting your power lie limp and useless as an unconnected wire. Just what a beautiful description. But also in that description is a suggestion that you need to stay connected, wired, snap, snap, sizzle. Stay connected so something can pass between us. And she wrote that poem, Power, because she'd been so enraged, sickened, I think was the word she used, when she found out about the acquittal of a white police officer who'd murdered a black child. She was so sickened with fury that she stopped the car and that poem came out, she said, almost without cry. And there's something about that, the way in which sometimes you have to stop what you are doing to register the impact of violence in order that it can pass through you, in order that it can go to someone. And here it is in the form of a poem. So when I think about a toolkit, I'm really thinking about the things that we create, that we make, that both record the trauma of the violence that makes it so hard for us to be or those we love to be or the world to be even but also to not just record it, but to communicate it, to keep it going. There's so many ways in which you're invited to hold it. I sometimes call it filing. I once talked to a professor informally, and she said that after she experienced something that was really, really painful, misogynistic meeting, like there are a lot of them, but sometimes they really hit you. And she just said, you file it under, don't go there. You file it under, don't go there. That file, don't go there, is where you have been. Like all of those difficult histories that you just put away because they're hard to handle. And for me, the toolkit is partly about how can we bring it out in a way that isn't too much, that doesn't weigh us down too much, that we can't focus or function. So it's a way of bringing it out by bringing it to others. So it's very much about collection, collecting our stories, companionship, finding our companions, those who get it because they've been there, community without question, building communities that are premised on relationships that are understood as fragile because we are, and also connection, making connections and keeping them alive so that we can messages can pass between us. And I think a lot of the work that I really love, a lot of the Black feminists and feminists of colour, Indigenous feminist work especially, for me has been about turning that question of survival into the question of how to keep the connections alive that are going to keep our hopes for social change alive with them.
1: I would actually really love to hear more about your feminist trajectory through your aunt Gulzar Banu as Mm -hmm. Muslims were often thought of as being impossible feminists. And yet, you talk about learning a feminism first from your Pakistani Muslim and Gulzar Banu. For for me, it was my maternal grandfather, actually my nana, who was a radical feminist. And in some ways, I think we can think of these as queer feminist histories in the sense mm-hmm. that they challenge the stories and the narratives about the normal roots that we're supposed to learn feminism from, usually from. Older white women. And can you talk about Gozar Bano and these other stories and figures that allow us to create worlds where we can want different things?
2: Oh, well, that's a lovely question because I love to think about Gozar and to bring her into the room. Yeah, you know, I when I think about my experiences of being a killjoy, feminist killjoy, they were very much... At home with my family. I was brought up in Australia with my father's Pakistani, my mother's English, and we didn't have extended family near us. So we're very, very isolated in general. And so that family table was really a set of arguments between me and my father, and I have a very, very difficult relationship with him. And those experiences of ruining the atmosphere, ruining the dinner, they were very much part of my trajectory as a child. But I had these aunties. Every now and then my auntie would come and twice when I was younger, we went to Pakistan and Auntie Kozal was just like this. It was a, a kind of queer alternative. This very powerful, poetic woman who hadn't got married, who hadn't lived a conventional life, who had been in politics, written poetry. She made me know that it was possible to live differently. And she had such a strong connection. She often said, I was the daughter she didn't have. And I was the daughter she had, in fact. I'll say that to you. And I, I got a lot from her. She was very much willing, always, to speak her mind. And I would watch her tell my father off would be just like, yeah, this is possible. Oh. And she was outspoken, but also very loving. She's no longer with us. I never came out to her in the sense of said I am a lesbian or whatever, but I think she kind of knew we had conversations and I think she would have been okay with it. And because she was just a very, very curious and creative person and, a, and an enormous influence in my life. And she, we would have these discussions about women, women's position in Pakistan. Feminism we didn't use that word, but that that's what it was about. Like what does it mean to be able to define who you are for yourself? And So yeah, she was very much the first feminist conversations I had with an older person. I lucked out, basically, by having them with my auntie. And then I did the next sort of, when I think about my feminist trajectory after that, it was much more what I found in universities. And I did my first degree at Adelaide Uni. I didn't know there were feminists. You wouldn't have known if you'd seen my course. It was just, it was like the widest. And I never got taught by anyone who wasn't white in my whole, like, school, university, never. Not one. And it wasn't until I went to do my PhD. I read some feminist theory, but it wasn't when I wasn't went to do my PhD in the UK and Wales that I encountered Audrey Lorde, Gloria Azanjua, Sherry Morago, Bra, Beatrice Bivak, all these amazing works, and I could connect them to the kind of feminism I heard from my auntie Cousar. And that made sense to me. So that was a very important trajectory. And also as a reminder that you can feel cut off as a killjoy, but you often have these killjoy elder, these killjoy aunties. They give us more than inspiration. They give us an alternative pathway to ourselves, which I think is really a magical thing.
0: Well, well Sarah, now you have to have a T-shirt that says killjoy auntie. You know, Aziza <laughs> mentioned citation. I'd like to cite you to yourself. Oh. It's <laughs> one of the most lovely passages of the book. And you say, killjoy activism can be how we fill up what we free up. We start from a simple premise, we have different needs. Dismantling as a project might seem on the surface negative and destructive, but if, as we learned from the feminist Kiljoy's poet, possibility is built out of the system, we need to destroy what is built to make some lives possible, to make it possible for some people to get what they need. In other words, dismantling is a building project. And so could you talk about what you're building? Let's think of getting back to Robin's comment about a vision. Even the word vision has been institutionally contaminated, but let's bracket that to imagine what kind of world are you trying to build?
2: That's such a big question, a beautifully big question. I think it's true. I mean, abolition as well has been a very, very important part of the work that I've read about abolition to actually challenge the presumption that it's simply about negation or destroying something and thinking about actually what you're making and what you're creating in the process of trying to bring something down. These aren't two separate actions. They're two different aspects of the same action. I think that's actually very important. I guess what I really wanted to show in the handbook is how much creativity and inventiveness comes out of the difficulty of getting through. Like say, you know, the story I mentioned of the student who's no longer in the university, so she couldn't have a career. The door was shut. That's what she said. And I heard the door when she said that. I heard it shut. And that means that it was shut because she tried to stop the harassment from happening to somebody else. So the door was shut. So when she said no, she ended up with nowhere to go. And that's one of the institutional mechanisms. You're more likely to progress if you say yes. It's a reproductive mechanism, which is why feminist killjoys know so much about everything. We can explain how it is that institutions keep being reproduced in the same way. So what then do you do? Where do you go if your no has nowhere to go? You have to find other ways of getting the no's out. And so the, the very almost utopian elements in the latter part of the handbook are actually trying to pick that up. Because what I'm trying to suggest is that, yeah, there's been so many shut doors, so much violence, including the violence of how institutions respond to violence, the ways in which those who complain are shut out. But each time someone makes a complaint and says, no, there is something going on there that is not simply about the disappearance of that person or the disappearance of what they said or what they did. It is kept alive in some way. And so for me, when I think about a vision of of what I'm building, I'm also trying to think about the ways in which those actions that seem to fail, to go back to your earlier point, actually don't. They go somewhere, they get somewhere, filling up what you're freeing up. The implication of that is when the space is no longer bound up with the reproduction of the norm, there is more room. And so when you say not, it seems like you've got nowhere to go, but just if the note gets out, somebody else finds out about it. They found out you made a complaint. If it gets out, if you loosen the nuts and the bolts just a bit to create an opening so something gets out, you're making room. You're creating some sort of space. And one of the things that was really part of the research I did on complaint, which was from the book that came out previous to this one, was the way in which when people make complaints and it gets filed away and it's all a very depressing story, actually those complaints often get unburied the past complaints get by the present complainer because she finds out or they find out or he finds out that complaint had been made. And there's sometimes a communication between the past complaint and the present complainer. And then there's something about that's the world building. So I'm not gonna give you an image of what the building would look like, but it's actually thinking about the kinds of possibilities of building relations and connections between people, sometimes separated by time and place. When you're thinking about the no to the institution, as then what we can pass around. And then that's when we have those small spaces, perhaps breathing spaces, institutions that make it so hard to breathe. We create those breathing spaces and there is the political invention. There is the imagination and the curiosity. And there is my sense of where the Killjoy finds her people. And I think when you say no to the world and you're pushed out by it, you still find your people. And there's the world-making. It's in the people who find in the refusal of the institution a common ground.
0: That is such a beautiful and perfect answer, Sarah, because any project of liberation doesn't presume what life after liberation is going to look like. So Sarah, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your ideas about a book that is transformative, inspiring, and it gives us so much strength. So thank you for that.
2: Oh, thank you. It's such a Killjoy, joy, as I say, to speak to both of you. I really appreciate the time and the care in your questions. Thank
0: okay.
1: You, Sarah. You, um.
0: Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.